You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. What a good evening service so far. I'm telling you, I don't feel really up to the task of preaching after I heard those testimonies that the teenagers gave. And uh, I'm telling you, I'm blown away. I worked at a summer camp for four summers growing up, um, for, from when I was 16 to when I was 20 years old. And I was able to see God work in countless young people's lives. And that, it actually, that, that stuff, these conferences, camps, uh, they do wonders. Um, just even working there, I was able to make big life choices and decisions based on the preaching, the prayers that went into it. And even this week, it was a good refresher for me that there are no accidents, that God's going to equip you for what you need. And every, every person's life, we're going to have a walkaway moment where we're going to want to turn around, we're going to want to quit. And then I, to see the teenagers throughout the services um, respond like they did, um, to see the two young ladies get saved. And that should excite you beyond every other thing in life. I'm sure... Your personal salvation is great, and maybe getting married and having your own child, those are all wonderful things in life, but things that should get you most excited in life as a Christian should be when another lost soul comes to know Jesus Christ. Amen. And just thinking about that, uh, it's really just weighing heavy on me because maybe there's something that you know I did or maybe I didn't do that could have swayed that their decision one way or the other if I wouldn't have maybe done something, showed up early for church. Maybe it wasn't, if I didn't, you know, just simply go out of my way to talk to them or show them that God really loves them, even when they're having a bad day or when they don't want to talk to anybody. Things like that can make a difference in a teenager's life, and that was evident this week. And I just encourage you guys to continue on doing that, and you teenagers, stick with it. Stick with it. And just a couple clarifications uh, before I get to a little testimony for the summer. Um, Carter is semi-polite. That is an inside joke. It's not really important to know. If you'd like to know, you can come ask me, Brother Jacob, or any of the teen boys later. I'm thankful that they did not mention the word cheese knees. That is another inside joke that I'm sure they will enjoy me saying and hearing one more time before I leave for the summer. But I am really, really thankful for this past week and for all the prayers and that the teens responded and were sensitive to the Lord in that way. And looking back over this past summer, I really want to say thank you for a few things. I know it's going to be kind of broad and not going to be able to get very specific for each and every person here. But if I could, I'd like to, you know, give every single one of you guys a hug and say thank you and extend a hand. Do whatever I can to show you my appreciation of how much uh, this summer really meant. And even though it went by fast, um, it was an incredible summer for me to be able to, to learn, get experience just to what it is to minister, be a blessing and be blessed uh, a lot of you guys have said that you, you've been a blessing this summer and an encouragement. Um, I have been more blessed and more encouraged uh, this summer more than I ever have. And uh, I, I appreciate Eastside Baptist Church and the members of it for doing that. I really want to say thank you for taking care of me this summer, um, for really accepting me as part of the Eastside family. And for all this time uh, we spent fellowshipping here at the church, but more importantly around food, which is always a good thing in life especially for a Baptist. 
don't know what it's like up here in South Dakota, but uh, in Kentucky, where I'm from, it's like a ritual. Um, we have a, there's a fellowship at least uh, once a month, and it's, you're like, that's a lot. Well, it's just because we like eating, and I don't know how else we... What else says I love you more as a brother in Christ than to be stuffing your face of uh, someone's favorite chocolate pie? Anyways, <laughs> I really want to say thank you uh, to Pastor Jet for the trust that he put in me and faith that he put in me uh, to ask me to come up here for the summer, for the church, backing him. And um, I hope I was able to live up to your expectations. Uh, more importantly, I was hoping that I was able to be all in while I was here as I tried to do my best. I can honestly say that uh, my heart is uh, tied uh, to this place, to the people, to the teenagers, to the kids. And uh, I'm very grateful for the time up here this summer. And uh, I never promised myself that I wasn't going to cry. I hope I'm not going to any- anymore. But who knows what's going to happen when I graduate, hopefully next year. Hopefully if I pass my classes, y'all continue to pray for me in that aspect. Not that I'm a bad student, it's just sometimes I don't want to go to class. I don't want to do homework, it's annoying. Some of you teenagers and kids are still in school, get that. Um, but no matter what happens, I hope to visit up here um, sometime soon after I graduate or even during the year, even whatever the Lord has planned, I don't know. Um, but I love this place, I love this church, and thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Um, thank you. So, with all that said, um, I'm going to preach now, hopefully. And hopefully it's not me just preaching. I hope that it's the Lord speaking through me and that he would be able to speak to you, not me. I prayed today that, uh, that the Nate Lortzen would be put aside, that he wouldn't be speaking at all tonight, that he wouldn't be preaching, that he simply would be up there being used as a vessel. Um, and that's what I'm most of my prayer is this evening. So if you don't mind, go ahead and grab your Bible and we'll stand one more time to honor the reading of God's Word. Turn to the 142nd Psalm, if you would, please. Psalm 142. It's a short psalm, only about seven verses. And we'll read all of them. We'll just stand and follow along as I read. And this is David uh, writing here from this psalm. Keep that in mind as you probably throughout the other psalms, if you've read, to be able to notice the tone that David really gives off or the writing style that he, he exhibited is evident here. So let's begin reading in Psalm 142, and we'll start at verse 1 there. Follow along as I read. It says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, they have privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. And I said, Thou art my refuge, and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. 
Before we get into the message this evening, I'd like to pray, ask God to bless this time. So bow with me in prayer, please. Our dear Lord, uh, summer's gone by so fast, and time has come and gone, and right now, Lord, you, you're, it's time for me to leave here soon and tomorrow and head to the next stage of life that you've hold, held for me, Lord, but I don't want to forget this one and how much uh, this summer the experience the people here have meant to me personally and just great brothers and sisters of the faith that I look up to, uh, people that I can call on for help if I ever need it, Lord, for encouragement. And as we dive into the scripture this evening, Lord, I pray that you just be with me, be with my tongue, be with my thoughts, Lord, be with all our hearts, that the Spirit may dwell in here tonight, Lord, in a heavy way, like like we never experienced before. I may, that we may really sink in, sink in our teeth to the truth and the meat of this word, Lord, that you gave us, and that you would bless our time uh, studying it, Lord, and going through it and gleaning from it. We ask all these things in your precious holy name. Amen. And you all may be seated. Thank you very much for standing. Um, as mentioned before, I go to Heartland, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and uh, I don't know if this ever happened to you before, but one time I was coming home from work, it was freshman year, so imagine 18-year-old uh, Nate with no beard. I have pictures I can show you to prove that this, this, this guy exists. That guy saw me, and Brother Jacob has saw me, Brother Jet's seen you, and that's all the people that have seen me in the flesh in this form. Uh, it was no-faced, uh, sh- clean-shaven, baby-faced Nate. Uh, that weighed 185 pounds. That's about 45, 50 pounds ago. For those actually looking, going, wow, he looks extremely skinny. No, please, don't, don't flatter me. I don't need it right now. I'm trying to focus. That was about, that was 185 pounds. I had clean-shaven face. I was 18 years old, never really been on my own outside of the house. The first time I went to Heartland uh, to visit or was when I showed up to classes, that's an actual statement. I literally went to school, you know, just knowing that God wanted me to go there. So I went, and uh, I'd never visited the campus before. I, never, I didn't know anybody. I, uh, I started registration for that fall semester about two and a half, three weeks before classes were actually started. I got my acceptance letter, you know, the one that they send you that's like nice, and they're like, hey, you can come here now. I got that in my mailbox once school already already started. <laughs> I opened my P.O. box one day and I pulled it out. I was like, hey, look, I'm allowed to come here. Anyways, it's not, not the greatest plan. I'm not saying that it was the greatest way to go about it, but the Lord blessed it and he wanted me there. So God uh, provided a way and made a way for that. He also provided me a job. And on the way back from uh, my job one night, it was about uh, 10 o'clock, 10.30, 11 o'clock. And my car broke down on the side of the road. And I don't know if anybody else has experienced that. Um, but as an 18-year-old me, as I already described myself, um, I was scared out of my ever-loving mind. Um, I was, I'm from a town of about 12,000 people, and Oklahoma City has a lot more than that. I, I had only been there a couple months, and I was scared. Uh, and my car had broken down. I didn't know what was wrong with it. I'm not good at mechanics or figuring out things. The best I can do is go Google, um, fix this, please. And then when she tells me no, I go, well, looks like I'm not going to be driving home. Um, but, I, but I was uh, stuck on the side of the road. And uh, I really didn't want to walk back. It's too far of a walk uh, to get back to school. Um, plus, I like to call Oklahoma City the homeless capital of the world. 
Some of the teenagers that have been there this past week have pointed that out multiple times. They're like, there's homeless people everywhere here. And it's just, so I was scared. And uh, no one would answer their phones because it was late at night. People were trying to sleep or study. No one was answering their phones. Uh, and no one was going to stop. I had my hazard lights on. No one was stopping to help me, uh, my situation. Not that I really wanted to. Because if someone would have stopped and pulled over other, outside of a police officer, I probably would have started running back to school at that point. <laughs> I, was, I was not uh, exactly confident in my ability to fight off uh, anything more than a cat. <laughs> not to mention the place that I was broken down at um, in Oklahoma City is this uh, street called Northwest 10th Street. Um, if you watch Cops or Live PD, you might have seen this street. <laughs> And that is not a joke. I am not kidding. I was watching Live PD one time, and it was like, we're in Oklahoma City here on Northwest 10th Street. I'm like, oh my word, that's the school they're driving past. <laughs> I, uh, I was nervous. I was scared. I was uh, all alone. No one was going to answer their phones. So uh, just think, it was the first time you visited Sioux Falls as a very young, 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 young person. Some of you guys have to remember a long time back. Heath, this is probably when you had hair. <laughs> Try to remember that long time ago for some. Think of it, you were here in Sioux Falls, and uh, I asked Brother Juan, and I said, what's the most dangerous part of town? He goes, oh, it's where um, I frequent, West 12th Street here in Sioux Falls. I don't know if you've been there. Apparently, it's a scary place. Just imagine you being there, stuck there at night, 11 o'clock as an 18-year-old, really not knowing what to do, and no one's answering their phones. No one's stopping to help. No one really cares, it seems like. Um, so you could also say that I was in danger on top of being alone. And in this state of helplessness is where we find David. He's alone, he's helpless, he's afraid. And on top of all those things, like I was feeling that night, uh, David was legitimately running from men who were trying to kill him at this point in his life. So how does David really respond to all this? And this psalm is just a, him writing about it, a situation what measure of safety does David try to take or what does he try to do to keep himself safe and find refuge? Because like I wanted to do that night, I just kind of wanted to lay down in worry and grief in my helplessness and just, not really, but I felt like I wanted to die. But before we really get into this psalm, we need to understand where David was in his life in relation to the rest of the text David is on the run from Saul and his army because of David's newfound place in the kingdom. David is the next king of Israel, I'm sure as most of you all know. He's chosen by God. And Saul, the king at the moment, uh, cannot really cope with God's choice, mainly because God rejected Saul as king because he was prideful. He sinned over and over again, disrespected God's word. So... Saul, that's the reason Saul's being replaced. And David, at this, up to this point, had just been living a good godly life. He'd just a young man living like he was supposed to. And now he's running and fearing in life. David now is where he writes this from or recalls this from is when he was in a cave. If you, you want to get real specific, he was either in the cave of En Gedi or the cave of Adullam. It's 1 Samuel chapter 22 or 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's not real specific. And it's not really necessary to know that to understand the text here, so just bear with me. But he's trying to hide from Saul. That's the real main point here. He's trying to hide from, uh, hide from Saul. He's trying to hide from the army that's chasing him. 
And this psalm is a prayer that David makes from that cave. Now that we know that in relation to the context, let's dive into it. Where we really see verses 1 through 3, we see that David cried to God in the midst of trouble and loneliness. We find here that David's petition, his prayer, or the word used there in the text is supplication. It was a pouring out of both his heart and of the mind. David really let his fears and doubts of his circumstance drive him to the Lord. David showed and uh, he made mention of this trouble that God was in when he mentions in verse 2 there. He tells God that I showed him my trouble, literally telling him all about it like he's like a child when his parents ask, he goes, oh, buddy, what's wrong? And then your little boy just holds up a big pile of mush that was individually colored, colored Play-Doh, but now it looks like some random alien figure. And he wants you to fix it, but it can't be fixed. That's what David is. David's literally going, you know, Lord, see me. God, I sh- I, I'm, I'm here. Can't you help me at all? David's circumstance, as already mentioned, was dangerous. Saul was chasing him trying to kill him, a wanted man. In verse 3, we find that David found comfort, though, in God during this overwhelming time. He says that, my spirit was overwhelmed within me. And then it says, then thou, talking about God, then thou knewest my path. The word overwhelmed there is really given the implication of being covered with darkness or trouble or sorrow. David was literally drowning in distress. He was drowning in worry and fear. He was ready just to give in because of the relentless pursuit of his enemies. Charles Spurgeon, in commentary that he wrote, said this, David was a hero, and yet his spirit sank. He could smite a giant down, but he could not keep himself up. He could not fix this on his own. Yet in this mess, we find that David takes comfort in knowing that God knows exactly where he is and what is going to happen next. And even though he had that comforting thought, David couldn't help but look around. He's human. He has eyes. He couldn't help but look around and looks around for help. And he becomes very, really disheartened in verse 4. And why is that? Well, it's because in verse 4, he really shows that David recalls his desolate state. And the word desolate is not used in the passage here as most Preachers are taught, at least taught, we are in school, to try to use as much verbiage from the passage as possible to help be biblically correct. But the word desolate really fits here because the word desolate definition is having, feeling, uh, having the feeling of being abandoned by friends or by hope. And that really is what, is in, what encapsulates this verse here in verse 4. David noticed really that no man, that no man would know him. It says, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. And David mentions that no man would even care to look his way, totally shunning him from their lives. Which this is a bizarre fact to me the first time that I read through this, because I don't know if you remember who David is, but he had previously uh, killed a lion and a bear protecting his sheep. Now as a shepherd, that's, as a shepherd, that's a really big deal. But thinking about how news might have spread about a young teenage boy who had physically killed a lion and a bear just to protect some sheep. That's incredible. Think of that happened today, that happened on the news story. It'd probably say, Florida Florida boy kills lion and bear. (laughs) But not only that, he later in his life, not very long after that, kills a giant. 
The Philistines are attacking Israel, threatening to take them over, and they have no idea what to do. And David finally comes on the scene, and he's like, you guys just going to let these guys push you around? We serve God. If you're not going to do something, I'm going to. So he goes out there and kills him by the grace of God and by his protection. So this, this is bizarre to me to think that David has no help from anyone. His, pop, his popularity was probably through the roof. He was probably the number one, uh, number one search request for Google or scrolls or whatever they used back then. But really, at this point in life, you, David literally says that no one cared. That no one was going to give any help to the people's champion. Because when David came back from that war against the Philistines, after he killed Goliath, they say, well, Saul has, has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. The people loved this, this kid. Yeah. And he was just trying to do what God wanted him to do. And that's why he was chosen to be king. And now this champion of the people, the one who's popular among everybody, he's literally all alone trying to hide and save his own life. Not, and not really because he did anything wrong. And the phrase in this verse that says no man is important because it gives the idea of not only refusing uh, to care, but literally not even giving anything that David could use for care. There was, he had no friends, no relatives, no co-workers, no maidens, no housewives, no children, no dogs, no cats, nothing. He was all alone. And David even says there that refuge failed me. And that word refuge is described as a retreat. Somewhere to flee or hide or escape. Even somewhere just where he could hide to find not even a safe place. He's just trying to stay out of sight so he can survive one more day. Completely failed him. All gone. You could say that this moment is absolutely terrible for David. And you'd be right. You'd be absolutely right. The enemy had chased him down, laid traps for him over and over again, and now everyone in his life that would have known him has completely forsaken him. Yet while this is weighing heavy on his heart and mind, we see here that David manages to continue this prayer to God and ends with an optimistic tone. And David in verse 5 says, I literally, it said that I cried unto thee, O Lord. So he's at his wit's end. We see at verse 5 through 7 there that David really cried to God because he knew who God was. And at this point, he had no other options. You know, we sometimes, like David, are the last ones to, we really are the last ones to run to God. And he's actually the first, and he's also the first one that we blame. When something's not going right in life, they say, well, God, you know, he's nowhere around. He's not helping me. He can't even see me in this situation. And then we just completely abandon God. Then we try over and over and over again to do something with our own power, our own will. But then we realize that nothing else is going to help us. So then we go, hey, God, I need your help bad. But David really started this prayer with a complaint, as it said in verse, uh, in earlier in, this, in verse 2. And it, it has a sad tone. But he soon remembers who God is. He's the almighty creator who has omnipotent power... That can bring anyone out of any situation. That's the God that David's praying to. That's the God that he grew up knowing. And it's here where really the prayer turns uh, from the sense of woe is me that David has to, well, why should I be worried? You know, the change that seemed to happen is best described again by Spurgeon, another quote, when he said, when we begin a psalm with crying, we may hope to close it with singing. That the voice of prayer soon awakens the voice of praise. 
And David here is noted as calling God his refuge. You know, earlier in the, in the verse prior, it said that all refuge had failed him. Well, not, not all refuge. It said refuge failed him. The refuge that he tried to find right. on, with his own power. Right. And when referring to God and his refuge, um, it's not, it, the, it gives the definition of it is one of shelter, a place of safety. Not just a run down, a deadbeat place to be at. God's refuge is a place where we feel loved. We feel at home where we feel like we have peace that we can lay down with certainty knowing that we're going to be okay. It's like when you're finally back from a hotel in a sketchy part of Oklahoma City to when you're at home and you have no, you have no fears whatsoever, no weird smells, no strange stains on the carpet, no irons burning shirts. There's a peace, there's a security about that. David's really saying here that, God, you are my hope. You're my place of shelter. You're my trust. You're, you're all my hope. You're where I can confide no matter what. God's refuge is not just a place where he can hide, where he can escape. What David is really trying to get across here is that, God, you're all I need. And that even David, after verse 5, doubles down on his trust in God uh, because he would remain in a helpless condition without God. He realizes that in verses 6 and 7, where where he uses the word, ask God to attend. He's asking God to deliver, to bring his soul out of prison. He's asking God to work. He's allowing God to work. So hopefully you can see yourself maybe in a situation in your life in this story, but really, what really did we uncover here? And I'd like to submit to you that it's this, this thought, that David cried to the Lord when in danger because he knew God alone could deliver him. Amen. David prayed during this time of trouble, this time of tribulation, when there was sorrow in his life, when he had nowhere else to go. He cried to God because David really knew that God was going to be sufficient enough to save him. Yes. Throughout David's life, he is really found praying and inquiring of the Lord because David had the title of wanting to be a man after God's own heart. We find that David started this prayer really out of necessity because of fear, because of uncertainty, but he ends up thoughtfully realizing that God can and God will bring him through this prison. It's here that David revisits the truth that it's God alone that can and will bring deliverance when we intentionally and affectionately cry out to him. And that's how we find saving grace. When we intentionally get down on our knees and intentionally open up our hearts and say, God, I have nowhere else to go. I, I realize now that eternity is not in my hands, it's in yours. Please, Lord, I accept you into my heart. I believe you. I believe in you. You can call on him by faith, by, through, by, faith, through, or by grace through faith. David, during this great time of trouble and uncertainty, sought the presence of God through prayer. Now, we too can cry to God when in danger because it is God alone who can deliver us. And just like David, we can cry to God in any uh, situation because he is sufficient still and always will be for anything in life. Yes, amen. 
Now, David thought that life was going to be wonderful now, that he's the anointed king of Israel. He had already, you know, had a weird life growing up, being, a, being in a big family and being a youngest and getting in the nasty job of being a shepherd for the sheep. But, you know, because of circumstances, being able to defend himself and keep the animals away from the sheep and killing a giant, no less, that he is now, popu- that he is now popular. And not only that, but he had a significant talent being able to play the harp. And that's what he was doing in the kingdom at, this, at that point in time before he became king. He was just playing the harp for Saul to calm his soul. You know, this move to royalty, you know, progressively just got worse and worse for David. And now we really see here in his psalm that David's character, his stock, what he's made of, his moxie, some might say, it's really being tested. It's this time, I think, in the cave while on the run that it helped David realize his need for God. Even though David made some questionable choices and decisions along the way, he knew the proper response to life's problem and who could change his life. And that's God alone. So you might be wondering, how am I supposed to use that in my life? I'm not a king. I'm not an heiress. I'm I'm not going to be royalty. How can I be put in the shoes of a future king like David? Well, I think we all, David struggled with something that we all struggle with as well, and that's something called sin. That sin will always lead you to a dark, lonely place. It will leave you alone. It will leave you forsaken. You know, playing with sin is one of the most dangerous games that one can play. And I I one day realized myself that you're always going to lose. We all have sin. We all feel trapped by it at some point in life. And maybe that's you right now where it's, you feel like you can't escape it. It's keeping you hostage and it's becoming overwhelming like it was for David in the cave where you are feeling overwhelmed, you're pressed with worry and doubt and fear and you don't feel safe. So what's the sin you can't shake tonight? We like to categorize sins in different aspects of what's kind of a, you know, just a basic sin or extreme sin. So if we're going to categorize them like, like we do in our rationalizing them in our brain, I'd like to use that as a kind of a measuring stick, like it's a basic sin, like lying or stealing, telling, uh, being deceitful, coveting someone else's property or toys. Maybe it's unfaithfulness to your spouse, to your family, unfaithfulness to God in your personal walk. Maybe it's you're not loving your neighbor like you should or like you're supposed to. Maybe you're not honoring the Lord's day like he commands us to in Exodus. Maybe it's something more drastic that's having a, a very immediate impact on your life, like an addiction to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, to attention, to cigarettes, your phone, your social media, could be gambling. You may tonight feel trapped and be in a prison of debt and financial uncertainty because of some unwise financial decisions. And as you get older, you realize that the bills just don't stop coming because you don't have money to pay for them. Yeah, right. And it gets more and more stressful. And there's a weight like you have never experienced before that is hovering over you. It's pressing you down. And, you're being, and just so you can find a little bit of escape for just a moment to hide from it almost, you're in a cave. What do you need to do? Cry out to God because he's the only one that has the answer for your problem. 
And, and for churches across America, especially an independent fundamental Baptist church, I'm not saying that it, this one has, is, is struggling with it, but we have a thought of the sin of complacency where we're just accepting the new normal, where we don't care. We're, we're all right with leveling out. Uh, we, we, we have, we have an okay number of guests that come. We don't need to do any more outreach. You know, I, I think that the class is pretty good, so I don't think I need to give any more time studying for it and for the lessons. The singing's okay. Specials are okay, so I think we're, I think we're fine. So let, we don't really need to practice anymore. You know, we've grown complacent in church. David, in his life, could have grown complacent in this situation. Just like I was prepared to just grow complacent in the situation. I was just ready to accept the new normal. Huh, I don't have a car. I'm walking home. I was ready just to just accept that. And David could have done the same exact thing. And he could have just stayed living out of a cave. So my question is, again, how have you grown complacent in your life? And if so, you're playing a very dangerous game with your father in heaven, most of all. Because if it's, it's wrong to get a, okay, just a, I'm, a, you know, I'm an all right, complacent, the new normal kind of sense to your view of church. Where you don't think it's, it's really holy, it's not, necess- it's not needing our full attention all the time. It's not important. So I can just goof off and talk during the service. Or maybe it's on Wednesday nights. You're viewing that service as a little less, more important. And even though you say you're down on your knees praying and when it's time to pray for people to have legitimate needs and situations, that you let your mind get clouded and that you let your thought process go off on a rabbit trail and you start thinking about what the score of the game is or all the things you have to do at work the next day or what we're going to have to eat afterwards. You know, your way of life can also grow complacent and is a dangerous place to be in, like how much time you spend with your family, the discipline that you show in your life, or what you do on your alone time. We can go complacent with our spiritual growth. We can go complacent with our involvement in church services, or more like the lack thereof. Or we can also just seem okay with, now the Lord's really not speaking to me much lately. That's fine. We become callous to the Spirit. And God's not speaking to us anymore. It's not like he doesn't want to. It's because we don't want him to. And your spiritual life is being stunted of growth because of it. It's also true that when you're in danger, you usually become paranoid by f- paranoid. You become fearful and worrisome like David was here. And you might say, that's how you look at your ministry. Or when somebody, a pastor asks you to, hey, would you mind helping, consider about helping in this specific area? Whether it could be outreach, whether it's hospitality ministry or children's ministries, starting a discipleship course with a new believer, or maybe God, someone came to you in church and said, hey, let's be, let's have, let's be accountable to one another. Let's, have, let's be accountability partners. Or maybe it's just simply singing in the choir because, you know, I'm not that good and I'm scared about what other people are going to think. You know, there's also a danger of focusing too much on the quote-unquote big things in our life, the things that we place the most importance on, like our entertainment, our hobbies, our workouts, our online gaming, our favorite sports, our favorite team, how much we watch TV, that new show that's coming out, your favorite series, wanting to stay longer at work, 
because of the almighty dollar. And I'm sure you have great excuses like I do when I get pressured in situations like these. Where, I want, where their life's pressuring me to make decisions. And I just continue, and I just think that the, usually like, da, like David did, he just looked around and said, well, who's going to help me? And I look around for the world to find, give me a way out and for something that will provide me protection. And then I just continue to live in a state of despair and regret because I didn't call on God like I should have. I didn't trust in him like I should have. We, may, we also may say that we have seen people of God live miserable things in life, like they've had cancer and their family life is in shambles. They don't have enough money to survive or live a very comfortable lifestyle. They're looked down upon because they wear skirts or certain clothing out when they're in public. They're made fun of at work because they spend part of their break time reading their Bible just to be a good testimony. And you're scared, you're paranoid with fear. You feel like that's a danger. And, you're, and you know, you, you totally misinterpreted the situation, really. And even looking farther back, there was both David and Saul in this story. Even though they're not named specifically, two characters. And one's known for his great relationship with God and being a great king, being a great leader, standing with his God's people. And another one is known for his rebellion and his lack of leadership, and he's never really come in, turning into what God wanted him to be. So would you rather be Saul or David? Saul would just continue to try to find a way out by himself, but David's going to call on God. So what we see David doing here is using his view of the exterior circumstances, what's going on around him, and he uses that to help drive him to a greater dependence on God throughout his life. And he knows that God will take care of him. All his worries, all his problems, all he has to do is just pray and trust God every day. And that God will be king over the little things and the big things. Well, he recognized that his pre-existing, his pre-existing conditions or flaws or weaknesses, God was going to use those somehow. That he was going to ultimately bring him out no matter what. He knew the safest place for him was in God's will. David, at this point, realized that life was dangerous even though he was in God's will, even though it was a tough time for him. Life could be dangerous sometimes, and I kind of learned that in a real-life situation. I'm back in December of this past year, 2020. We're driving home. When I say home, my, that's when my dad calls Iowa. That's where he's from. We're driving home for Christmas like we do every year. It's about midnight late in December, after Christmas. We're going home to Iowa where we always go to visit. We're almost to our destination and our van starts to skid. It's a 15-passenger van like the one we have here at the church, Chevy Express. And the van starts to skid late at night. It's about midnight. We started sliding and then we ended up spinning in the middle of the road. Just did that a few times and then ultimately ended up in the ditch. After we had spun around a few times while on the road still, we ended up riding the shoulder just for a brief second before we rolled completely into a ditch. We did a complete roll, so if, you, if we're driving like this and we're spinning and we ride the shoulder and then eventually we fall in, completely turn over, get back on our wheels, except we hit 
the other side of the ditch and fall back on the driver's side and slide about another hundred-ish feet. And I don't know if I've mentioned or we've talked about personally about my family, but let me just tell you who was in the vehicle with me. My little brother Jonas, who is uh, 18 years old, is driving. Good driver. My dad, who just had an amputation of his right leg underneath the knee, so about right here, now learning how to walk as an amputee with a prosthetic leg, sitting in the passenger seat. Behind him is my handicapped sister, who, whenever we're out in public, we always put her in a wheelchair because she can't really walk that stable. And she can't feed herself. She's behind my dad. And I have an older sister, her name's Rachel, and she's sitting behind my brother, who is driving, Behind her is my youngest sister, the, young, the baby of the family, Marianna, who's 13. I'm sitting the second bench, closest to the door. And then my mom is sitting behind me in the third bench seat. And while this all was happening, uh, I was unbuckled. Everybody else in the vehicle was fastened, tied in. And the van starts spinning, and we, I have no idea what's going on. And we hit the shoulder, and I hear the rumble strips. And then we roll in, and everything is tossed around. Once we all kind of come to, I'm somehow fine. I braced myself against the ceiling and the floor. Only God knows how. And it was so surreal because it was like a movie where my vision was blurry and I looked up just to try to see what was happening because in war movies whenever someone gets knocked out with a with a explosive usually their vision is foggy but then they hear a lot of screaming a lot of problems in the in their surroundings and that was happening for me I hear screaming I hear my sisters my mom crying my brother is in a panic attack in the front seat doesn't know what to do and as I come to I kind of look and see my dad handicapped, hanging from a seatbelt. My sister, who's complete care on our part, hanging from a seatbelt, can't do anything. Both, both of my sisters are laying on this, are literally laying on the ground because the windows have been busted out. And they have stuff all over them. My mom's sitting in the back seat. I couldn't even see her. She was covered with presents and toys and different things that we had brought on the trip to be with us for that week. And she's screaming for help. And it was at that moment where I felt alone because I, did, I didn't know what to do. That the first time that I was, we were, I was faced with legitimate danger, I didn't know what to do. I made sure that everyone, everyone was somewhat okay. I was able to crawl around the van while I was on its side. But then I climbed out the van because the windows had been busted out. So I climbed out the van to try to see where we were. I kind of knew exactly where we were after regaining some of my consciousness and my memory. Just to look out the window and see nothing but snow-covered fields. No houses, no lights. As I mentioned, it was that moment. It was dark, late December. Snow and ice everywhere. Even, Even though my family was there, I was the only one that could do anything. And I was, I'd never felt so alone. And no one else was really able to move. And the town that we were going to, my, my Grammy lives right outside of, is Jessup, Iowa. It's a 
town of about 2,800 people, and we're not on a main road. We're still about 10 minutes outside of the county. So the likelihood of someone driving by to see us and help us in that situation, we're next to zero. In danger, alone, with no real refuge, some of my family literally crying for help. And I realized that there was nothing I could do in the situation, really. We were in danger that was over my head. The only thing I really could do was maybe get out and start running and try to find someone to find us to help. But I didn't know what the, what, honestly, what the physical condition of was most of my family. My brother was bleeding from the head. And I didn't know what to do. If I would have ran and gone, my fam- gone to try to find somebody, I could have gotten frostbite. I honestly could have died in a ditch somewhere. And my family could have been stuck there overnight and possibly could have died themselves. Thankfully... The Apple Watch connects to your phone, and I was able to call 911, get a mile marker, and they were able to be out with us, out to us in about 10 minutes. And we somehow, after they busted out the front windshield and got us all out, all seven of us in that van were literally walked away. No, no trips to the hospital. My brother's bleeding was just minor. They had no stitches or anything. They just put a band-aid over it. Just some glass and cuts on her skin, nothing terrible. And yes, the Lord protected my family, protected me, but every time I leave the house, I realize that I'm in danger. Every time I, I leave the store, that there's legitimate danger, or the restaurant, or church, or whatever you're doing. Every moment we live, we breathe, we talk, we're in danger could be in danger physically, even though we might be thinking we're all right. And spiritually even thinking, as we try to, as we try to shift your focus back to the passage, you know, we, we spiritually also are in danger. The lion, the, the devil's a walking about, seeking whom he may devour, trying to calm us down from our zealous behavior of Christ and trying to get us, and he's, and he's trying his best, and he's, and he's laying snares, and guess what? You have nowhere else to go because you're just trusting in yourself. And now you are in a cave. And God did not call us to be in a cave. He did not call us to be cave Christians. We're supposed to be out there witnessing and doing the work of the Lord. But now, because of all the things that are happening around you, and you don't know what to do, and it all happened so fast, the van spun, and you're flipped over, and somehow everyone around you is hurting. You have no place else to go. And so the only place you go for safety is a little cave. And now you don't know what to do. And that's what exactly what the devil wants. The world attacks and sometimes we just lose attention. We lose the grasp of what we're doing. And we end up diving into a ditch where we are in, we're ultimately left to die. So as we close, I have a few questions and a couple statements. One of them is this. What are you going to do when you get in danger? Our natural reaction, at least for men, is to try to figure out the problem. Ladies always try to tell their husbands, they start explaining what's happening in their life or their day-to-day. And sometimes I've realized that ladies actually don't really want a problem to be fixed. They just want to be heard. But at least our instinct is the first thing is, we got to fix it. 
And sometimes that's our first reaction when we spiritually start sliding or something is, we're in danger or someone around us is having a problem. We're like, oh, let's fix it right away. But we would, what we really should be doing is stopping and saying, you know what, we should probably seek the Lord on this one. Let's pray to God. He's the only one that can bring us out of this situation. No matter how big or how small it may be, God's the only one that can do it. So what are you going to do when you get into danger? What is your move? What are you going to do? Who are you going to trust in? You could trust in others like David did in verse 4. He looked around, noticed. He, he, you could do what David did and try to trust in yourself. Because he was the one that was trying to find refuge, not someone else. But ultimately, the only, play, the only, reason, the only way we're going to get out of danger, the only way we're going to leave that sin-ridden condition, the only reason, the only way that our calloused hearts are going to be made soft and sensitive once more to the Lord and his leading, the only way that our lives are going to be able to be changed, the only way we're going to be able to be saved from hell into a life everlasting full of blessings is if we, if we right here in the problem, or even before the problem, decide to get on our knees and say, Lord, I need your help. You could be in a circumstance and it seems impossible to maneuver through. And you feel like you're lost, you're stuck on the side of the road or in danger. You feel alone without a ray of light. And no man can fix the predicament that you're in. You need to call on God to bring you through and trust that he will deliver you. Life may seem like a dark cloud, a big mess, a heavy weight sometimes. Or feel like you're constantly running from a problem. Sometimes you feel like all you can do is hide in a cave and pray. If you're in a cave tonight, you need to start praying. And if you're not, pray that you never get to the cave. So, you know, so stop looking at the snares that are being laid in your path. Stop looking at the problems that are plaguing your life or the situations that you can't control. Stop looking for a place to hide. Stop looking for earthly refuge or protection from a world that does not care about you. Stop searching for a finite man to fix your condition and just get on your knees and cry to God. Amen. Pray with certainty, knowing that God will deliver you. Amen. So why don't you tonight cry to the Lord because he's the only one that can deliver you. Amen. It's him alone and nothing else. Amen. This time we'll ask all your heads to be bowed and eyes to be closed and we'll have a time of invitation. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.